you know, sometimes when you, you're preparing, particularly one of the things that we do um, if you're visiting, we work through books of the Bible. And uh, it's great when you're in certain parts of the Bible because uh, the, it's straightforward. You can relate to the text. It's, it's in lots of ways, it's part of our world. But when we dig into this old stuff, this early part of the Old Testament stuff, particularly the books like uh, Joshua and Judges, it's like such a different world. I'll tell you what, sometimes when you come to chapters like this, and we haven't seen anything yet, we're going to read another little bit of the chapter in a few minutes. The early part of chapter 11 is manageable. The back end of chapter 11 is shocking. I'm just giving you the heads up there. It is shocking. What do we do with books like this? What do we do with chapters like this? How do we cope when we see this kind of thing laid out before us? One of the things that we really hold to is that you cannot understand the meaning, the significance of the parts of the Bible like this unless you relate them to Jesus. And Jesus, I believe, speaks out loud and clear in this chapter in two ways. In one way, he speaks out loud and clear as a parallel, which we're going to see. And then he speaks out loud and clear as a contrast. That's very, very often how God deals with us. He says, Look at this event in my journey of salvation for the world early on before I've even made myself known and see how it's, it's kind of preparing you for me because it looks a little bit like me. But then he also says, look at this, the way God's people have dealt with this or the way this situation unfolds. Look at how that happens and you say, that is so far away from the way God deals, that in a strange way that points to God. Because it says, I am like the first one, and I am not like the second one. But both of them point to Jesus. And that's our journey this afternoon. How does a strange chapter like this speak about Jesus? I want to open it up by saying that one of the things that we've seen in the book of Judges is just this kind of repeated process of God's people going through crisis, rebelling against God, turning their back on Him, heading off in the worship of all sorts of other gods, and then them saying sorry. It reminds me of um, an Elton John song. It was on the Rocket Man album, I think it was. And it made me, it made me Google, actually. Well, it made me YouTube. Uh, the song. I wondered whether it was in the, the recent film, Rocket Man. Some of you might have seen it. I haven't seen it. I was kind of tempted until I saw this clip. And I thought, this is, this, this is not my kind of film. Um, it's kind of this really cringy bit where everybody in a restaurant is kind of singing a few words of the song while Elton John wanders back into the, rest the restaurant. If it was kind of a moment to expect me to watch it, it had completely the opposite effect. It's sad, so sad. A sad, sad situation. And it's getting more and more absurd. It's sad, so sad. Why can't we talk it over? Oh, it seems to me 
but sorry seems to be the hardest word. They're kind of iconic lyrics, those, aren't they? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Do you know what? The book of Judges tells us that that is so, so wrong. Because the reality is that sorry is a really easy word to say. What's really hard is to act out sorry. To actually be sorry. If we see God's people through the book of Judges, what we see again and again and again is sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, wow. They could weep. They could fall apart. Tears could pour out of their eyes. But what we see is there isn't a deep life changing sorry in the people of God. Do you know what I think Judges does in that way? It lays bare our hearts. I think there's a real temptation that we kind of stand above all of these people in Judges and say, yeah, you roll the ghost a ride. You say sorry and then you don't behave it. You say sorry, then you don't behave it. And then I think when God deals with us, we say, that's my heart. I have every tendency to say sorry and not live it. And before God, that is a terrifying prospect. To not truly live out, to not truly mean what we say. And so, Judges, as a book for 21st century Christians, is a huge warning message. It is so easy to go on that journey of sorry. Why do we do that? I think one of the reasons we do it is because we think that God is just this slot machine God of grace. That, you know, I can come back and I can say sorry anytime I want. And, and those sorries are kind of like coins in the slot machine. And I just bung in a few more coins and out pops the grace of God that forgives. And actually all that we're doing there is we are managing and manipulating God so that we know just what to say, we know just how to behave in our minds so that we get what we want, the feeling of forgiveness that we expect. Do you know what? That's how children in nursery behave. One of the amazing things about little children is that they can be so, so amazingly manipulative. They are brilliant at it. And you know what? We are like children in nursery before God when we behave like that. We just bung a few more coins in and we say sorry to God and we think it is all okay. Let's have a look at the crisis that the people are in. Previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 6 and 7 says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsake the Lord, forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, up to now, there's been this They've rebelled and they've served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. 
This time the narrator lays on layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of all of the ways in which they were rebelling against God and serving every God they could possibly find apart from the one true God who had redeemed them out of Israel, out of Egypt rather. The one who God who had moved amongst them and changed them and become their God, they'll serve anything but that God. And that's the purpose of this. We should be feeling at this stage, we should be on this journey of, oh, come on. Look at what's happening. It's just this repeated cycle. Again and again you go through this. A constant stream of monotonous rejection of Yahweh and then repentance. Hearts laid bare. That's the crisis. The first thing that we're going to see is the amazing intervention of God because chapter 10, verses 6 and 7 look like the game is over. Look at the way it ends. God became angry with them and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. What actually happens is that God hears them. At the end of chapter 10 and verse 15 and 16, we read this. I am really sorry, I should have had this on the screen. Listen, listen to the words I'm going to read. It is incredibly powerful. The end of chapter 10, verse 15 and 16, it says this. But the Israelites said to the Lord, under this oppression, they said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. That is amazing, isn't it? That is pleading. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. That's what they did. <laughs> but I love the next bit. Listen to the next bit. Look at God's response. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. That is astounding. A God who is angry because his people are rebelling. And he says, I'm going to allow you to go in the direction. Go in that direction. I'll take my hand off you. This is how it's going to end up. You're going to be serving those people who worship those gods that you worship. You, you want to worship their gods? Become the, their servants as well. But when they cry out, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. It feels to me as though the pleading heart of a rebellious daughter, Israel, comes upon the ears of a God who desperately loves them. That's the way it seems to play out to me. That's the way the narrator seems to handle that bit of the story. The way God responds. It's as though God desperately loves them. His anger is that He hands them over. But that does not mean that He stops loving them. That is great news. Because that is the character 
of the God of the Bible. He does not leave them like that. And when they plead as a rebellious daughter, it feels to me almost like the tragic situation of something like, I don't know, drug addiction or something like that where the daughter just continually abuses the parent again and again and again. But in the pleas and the tears and the brokenness, the father still loves the daughter. And he could bear it no longer. And therefore, he intervenes. And he intervenes in the most surprising of ways. He intervenes in a way that the people did not expect in the way that people find confusing, I would think. And we should, in a way, find it confusing. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, because God does respond. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. You can imagine the situation, can't you? In some way, Gilead has, in that kind of patriarchal environment where it seems as though he has at least one wife, but the child that the prostitute bears, that is his son, also becomes part of his family. He brings him into the family and raises him. So there's kind of a perverse kind of honor. But as, he, as those sons get older, the sons of the wife turn around to the son of the prostitute and say, you're out, mate. Because you're not really part of the family. You're not going to get any inheritance. Your mother hurt our mother. We're the real ones. You get out. Don't want you. And yet God chooses Jephthah to be the Redeemer. That's surprising, isn't it? Surprising that the one who is cast out becomes the one who becomes the redeemer for the people. We find out later on how that works out. He disappears off and he's surrounded by a bunch of vagabonds. It seems as though he becomes this kind of warrior, this, this tough guy, it would seem. Jephthah, look at verse, uh, verse 3. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered round him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Kilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. His reputation has got out there. He's the one who can deal with this. He's the guy who, we've got some kind of allegiance with this guy. He's kind of one of ours. Let's bring him in. Let's persuade him to come out. Didn't you hate me? Didn't you drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Why did you come to me when you're in trouble? 
because we think you're the kind of guy who can sort it out. <laughs> That's the answer, isn't it? We think you're the kind of guy who can deal with these Ammonites. We can't. They're way too tough for us. But look what you've done. Your gang, you've put together this gang. You've got a reputation. You can deal with this. The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Now come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. What do we see is going on? We see this in simple terms. It's kind of like, it's just like peeling back a little bit of the edge of the paper to see what's underneath. A little flavor. A little touch of something. But what is it? It's the one who is rejected becomes the Redeemer. The one who is rejected becomes the Redeemer. If we know anything of how God works, it is precisely that. Jesus is the one who is rejected. Who by? His brothers. His family. His nation. When he is raised up and he, won, he comes into Jerusalem as this great triumphant king, everything is great news. And then within days, he is rejected. Who is he? In that incident, in that moment, he transforms completely in their minds and he becomes an illegitimate child again. He becomes one who we don't want anything to do with you. We want you out, get away from us, and yet remarkably, God works in this way. He says the one who is rejected will become the Redeemer. Why? Why does God work like that? Well, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, you need to understand this about God. That God will choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's how God works. God will deal with you and me in that way. He will say the way that you think salvation should be worked out is not the way it will be worked out. Because it's in weakness. It's in the brokenness of the one who is rejected that salvation will be worked out. So that none of you, it says later on, why does he do that? So that none of us can boast. So that none of us can say we're part of the deal. We're part of this salvation thing. You did your bit, God. We did our bit. No, absolutely not. I will choose the weakest. And I will confound two things. I will confound your wisdom. And I will confound your strength. That is how I work. So that's the first thing that we've seen already from this chapter. We see that God works in this way. He turns around an ancient story and He says, see this as a little way 
in which you can see me. A preparation for who I am. A parallel. I am a little bit like this. But God also says in the chapter, I am also not like this. Let me read on. I'm going to read from verse 29 through to the end of the chapter. When the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. So basically what's happened, God's people persuade Jephthah to come back. He writes a letter to the king of Ammon. And he lays out, we haven't got time to read it, read it later on. He lays out all the reasons why the king of Ammon should step back. Just step back, drop your shoulders, step back. You don't want this fight, we need to take this land. Do you want, don't fight. Because the God who we worship is the God who will give us victory. But the king of Ammon refuses. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. That's verse 28. Verse 29, then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aroah to the vicinity of Minith and as far as Abel Karamin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Then Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah. Who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, You've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Gilead, of Israel, sorry, go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Said it was shocking. That is shocking, isn't it? Jephthah, be careful the vows that you make. Here he is, filled with enthusiasm, filled with zeal, and he makes this massive commitment to the Lord. I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my door. Now, there's, there's a little bit of debate 
exactly what he expected. Did he expect an animal to come out? I think the commentator that I'm most persuaded by says no. Because generally something coming out wouldn't be coming out to meet him, which is the specific. Somebody, somebody coming out to meet him. And he says, I will sacrifice whatever comes out. Jephthah, you might be a redeemer, but you are also hopelessly messed up by the sacrificial system that surrounds you, that you've become part of, that you are buoyed along by. Here you are saying that you will sacrifice a human being. Where has God ever said to do that? That's what he does. He makes this commitment. But I think there's something deeper going on. And it's, it's that way in which we manipulate and we manage our part in the journey of faith and salvation. We say something like this. Okay, God, you say that faith is the only thing that's needed. Well, I tell you what. If you do this, then I'll do that. Then I can be part of my salvation. I'll do something. I'll do something that makes you recognize that I've been part of it. It is not good enough, it seems, just simply to say, I trust you. I trust you. I want to be part of it. Jephthah's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. That's all that he needs. He's not asked to make the vow. He's not. There's nothing in the background of God's people to persuade him that it's a good thing to do. And yet, he does. Can you imagine that moment when his daughter comes out? I think, I think the, the way the narrator puts it is even more powerful she dances out to the sound of a tambourine. His only daughter dances out towards him. And he falls apart. And he tells her, I've made a promise to God. I've made a vow to God. What do we see? We actually see a greater faith in the daughter. Because she turns around and she says, if that's the promise that you have made, then do it. Not because I trust you, but because I trust the God who we worship. Because He has redeemed us. Because He's saved us from the Ammonites. I know how this is going to end, but I will still trust Him. It's resulted in the festival of Arbat Yamin. Where Jewish girls spend four days celebrating together as a memory of Jephthah's daughter, who is allowed to go off and spend a period of time just with her friends before she comes back and she is sacrificed. Where does this point to Jesus? What do we do with it? I think we do this. We look at it and we say, what a tragic, pointless, hopeless waste of life that achieved nothing 
It did nothing. You sacrificed your daughter, Jephthah, for a stupid vow. You weren't called to do it. You wanted to be part of salvation. You wanted to achieve a bit of it. And you were called to do something, a promise that you'd made. And your daughter shows great faith by saying you've made an honor, a, a vow to God, therefore do it. But you, what have you done? You have wasted a life. How does that point to Jesus? Because Jesus is the Son who is sacrificed and unlike the pointless death of Jephthah's daughter, his death had absolute meaning. Do you see the contrast? How God says, I am a bit like this. I'm a bit like one who is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. That's, I'm a bit like Jephthah who's cast out, but I am not like Jephthah's daughter. I am not an empty, meaningless sacrifice. But there is a parallel because the Father gave the Son. One of the most famous verses in the whole of the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Why did He give His one and only Son? As a hopeless, helpless, meaningless vow, a pointless sacrifice? No. So that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the contrast? Jephthah's daughter does not save a single person. But the death of Jesus saves everyone who believes in Him. That is the contrast. And that is what this is doing. Preparing us for a great, meaningful, purposeful sacrifice. And the only one of worth. 